We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What a This is more than just watching football, it's a way of life. It is caring about the beautiful game, about the values that we cherish, and as well that something that goes for all our body, in every cell of our body, we care, we worry, we are desperate. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Uh, well, you'd think the day after a game and the day that Jose Mourinho has been sacked as the manager of Tottenham, those would be the things dominating the discussion. Uh, they will not. Unfortunately, we do not have time to stick the boot into Jose Mourinho and discuss that, nor do we have time to even discuss the Fulham match because this podcast is going to be devoted to discussing the... Uh, potential formation of the European Super League and Arsenal's involvement in that and the ramifications for football both broadly uh, and as it relates specifically to our club. So here's what I want to do. Firstly, we did have a great chat about the Fulham game before we knew any of this over on Patreon with our instant reaction. So what I will do uh, shortly after releasing this is set that to be a free podcast, meaning that if you go to patreon.com forward slash Arsenal Vision Podcast and you see that episode you will be able to listen to it without paying. So that will give you the escape 
of being able to hear about that game should you decide that you're interested in that. And I can understand if today's news and the discussion around it uh, obviates your interest in uh, thinking about the Fulham game, which totally understandable. The other thing I want to say just as a prefatory comment to this discussion, this is a very emotional topic. It is a topic that has, I think, taken the wind out of a lot of people's sails and the reactions are predictably emotional as they should be because we really deeply care about this game and this club and the state of play in football. But I'd like to have a podcast where we do what we always seek to do, which is to analyze the issues of the day in a way that presents a well-rounded discussion and debate. So it is very easy to come on here and condemn the greed that is involved in this proposal. And that will come up and we will certainly do that. But I think pulling apart what they are seeking to do, why they are seeking to do it, what the actual ramifications are, what the lead up to that decision has been in terms of the way football, the trajectory of football over the years preceding this are all parts of the discussion. And then maybe just breaking down what the proposal is actually going to create or seeking to create and how we feel about that. So I think all of us probably feel pretty down about this, but we will try to discuss it in a way that um, provides some analytical benefit to anybody who wants to listen to it. So that that is just my opening comment, because I know that there is definitely also a need for a little bit of catharsis of people just screaming about the greed and um, selfishness of this kind of move, but we may not just lean into that today. So I just want to sort of open the pod by saying that and get into the issues surrounding it. So the the first thing I want to do uh, is go to you, Tim, and simply address the issue of sort of football culture. You know, I tweeted something mm. today that kind of summarizes the way I feel about what they're proposing. Um, and my tweet was basically, as an, as an American Arsenal supporter, it's like going abroad and seeing a McDonald's. It's very familiar, and you know what to expect <clears throat> from it, but it's not why you're there, and it has no connection to the culture of the place where it exists. This proposal is something that I can close my eyes and tell you exactly how it plays out because it is very much an American proposal yeah. or, or at least the attempt to start to create the bones of an American-type footballing structure. That's not what brought me to football, and that's not what makes me love football. But there is a cultural element here, and as someone who has loved Arsenal for 20 years, I consider myself a true supporter, but I certainly am not part of the English football culture. I can't just adopt that because I say I want to. So can you maybe open this by talking about how you feel this could impact football and culture and why that culture is an important consideration in whether something like this should exist? Yeah, sure. So, <clears throat> excuse me, Re really, it comes back to the origins of football and something that I think all maybe not all English football fans that's that's putting it um I think that's that's being reductive but like most English football fans understand their football clubs as community assets um not franchises so um part of the reason that some of the like the comparison to uh, US sports and not even just US sports by the way like cricket has a closed competition called the Ashes which is invitation only um, you know rugby has, has had a super league for many many getting on nearly 30 years now I think it started in 96 so like it, it's not that like all English sports are sacrosanct from this idea or, or anything like it it's just with football it's very much a generational thing, right? Um, for a lot of people, and that and that definitely is changing. Hence, um, and I know we'll go into this. Hence, the reason there will be plenty of, even if not support for a super league. I mean, there'll be plenty of support for it, but people will, will probably just end up watching it anyway. Um, there will be 
one notion we should disabuse ourselves of is that this isn't going to be successful or popular. It is going to be both. Um, but the the reason the, the reason it I think offends the sensibility of of football fans in this country so much is because clubs are understood to be community assets, and and that's how and obviously that that hasn't really been true mm. for quite a long time. But that's how they're set up, right? So Arsenal was set up by workers in a gun factory in Woolwich, um, for example, and most English football clubs have this kind of background so it's 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 very much nearly i think nearly every single football club has basically devised this way um i think southampton came from a church uh, which is why i believe they're called the saints um so j- just look at the nicknames of the clubs and that will tell you where all of these clubs came from they all come from they all come from workers basically um, and, and obviously this isn't the first battle for the soul of football and stuff like that. And if you look in, I'd compare what's happening now to the Victorian era when you had um, the, the question about going professional versus amateur. And that was very, very contentious. Lots and lots of clubs uh, went by the wayside as a result of that. Um, and Arsenal, I mean, it's where I, I, I happen to have helped to write a book about this, um, but it's, it's very worth looking into. Arsenal were on that precipice of going professional or not. Had we decided not to, there is no question that Arsenal would not exist today. It's as simple as that. They'd have gone bust within five years. So uh, this isn't that new. But at the core of our fan culture is this idea that the clubs are community assets and that really the fans are at the centre of that. And then it's like the players are probably secondary to that. And then you've probably got the manager who's tertiary to that. And then the, the stadium, like in in English football culture, it is um, whether this is actually how everything works, which it isn't. There is still this idea that the fans are the absolute centre, that there is no club without the fans. Mm. Um, effectively so that's where a lot of this culture comes from and it's not as i've seen it described as very conservative small c um and i I don't i think that kind of misunderstands actually um i don't think there's a it's so much a conservatism here um well maybe it is in a sense but like what's happening here is a total and utter complete bloody revolution and i don't think being opposed to a complete and utter total bloody revolution makes you a conservative um so that that i that that's probably as as much as i can condense it down to be honest yeah no i i think that's a good backdrop for the conversation and sort of understanding what it means to be connected to your club especially of a certain generation and i think one thing that has to be considered here is you know, I've tended to think there will be a divide between foreign fans and domestic fans in terms of their reaction to this, but maybe the real divide will be an age divide between younger fans yeah, and yeah. older fans. Um, and, and let, let me yeah, just... I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I, I guess the only other thing I'd add from my absolutely personal perspective is like Arsenal goes back in uh, my family over a century, so over 100 years. And so that that lineage is strong. That idea is is strong. And I'm not saying that I'm absolutely typical, but there are plenty of people like me. Sure, of course. And I, and I think that that is something that's going to obviously influence the direction you want things to go. Let me back up just a second and restate for people who aren't totally, totally up to date with it what this is. This is a closed league. This is a 20-team league. 15 of the teams will be permanent founding clubs. 
they will always be in it. Five other teams will be able to qualify for it in ways that we still don't totally know how it will work. What we do know, or at least have been told from leaked documents, is that the five teams that qualify will get a pittance of the money, um, but the the founding clubs will split a massive pie uh, that J.P. Morgan Chase has uh, agreed to finance this in the early stages to provide the money for the joining clubs. 350 million euros, I believe, was mooted in terms of what a club would get for just joining up to this. Um, but there would also be other restrictions. There would be spending caps. Uh, there may be restrictions on transfers between the clubs where they go to more of an American style trading system uh, as opposed to buying and selling from each other, thereby further uh, increasing the profitability. There is no question that this is a move designed to edge these clubs towards being able to run successful football operations that are also profitable businesses. Um, and we can get into why you know that is a terrible thing or not a terrible thing as we go. I think it, it obviously the, the repercussions for that are that there would be no qualifying places domestically to get into this, maybe, maybe one. Again, we don't know how those five uh, qualifying teams would get in, but that incentive really changes. Clive, the, the thing that's hard is this is, look, I, I want to be clear about something. You can point out that everything has been corrupt and greedy for years and still oppose this. You can always draw a line in the sand where you say, I was willing to tolerate a certain amount of corruption and greed, but this is where I draw the line in the sand. But I guess I would say you have to go a long way back because when the Premier League was formed, that was a, a greedy move that disrupted the football pyramid in England. The Champions League, let's not forget. If you really want to say, I want to go back to the core culture of football, well, for almost 40 years, the Champions League was a tournament just among the people that won their respective domestic leagues. If we went back to that, which is the real culture of the European Cup, there'd be maybe one or two teams in England that would ever have an ability to qualify for it. And if we go back over 20 years, 96% of the teams qualifying for the Champions League have been big six teams, 96%. And all but one of the title winners, uh, pardon me, all the title winners have been big six teams. So we have the illusion of, of a competitive system, the illusion of the ability to qualify and, and enlarge your club and, and uh, grow your club. But it is more an illusion than a reality. I mean, I could win the lottery, but I can't. I can't really. So, Clive, I guess as you look at this proposal, how do you square the claims of greed, the claims of anti-competitiveness against a landscape that has been increasingly greedy and anti-competitive leading up to this? Wow. Big question. Well, it's big the question, question of the day, isn't it? Because we've been walked to this precipice. We've been standing. When we did the Project Big Picture podcast, we said this is coming. We've known we're standing on this precipice. So how do we square our claims that we want to maintain a soul of the game that maybe doesn't actually exist in the way we suggest it does? Yeah, well, we've grown up with FIFA and UEFA, and I raise you Sepp Blatter and Michel Platini. Well done, yep. Mm-hmm. You know, two great, great men of football. We all know what's happening there. So sometimes we get comfortable with the, the structures around us, even though we know they're rotten to the core. But the reason why we do that, because we feel that the core of the game is still there. Well, the core of the game wasn't there. And I listened to Tim speak, and there was a guy, remember, it was Jack Walker, Tim, that came into Blackburn back in the day. Um, yeah, yeah. The Premier League. It was in 93, 94. And... And that's what people liked, a guy that was up in the northern part of the country. He made good, and he made his local team win the Premier League with Sutton and Shearer, et cetera, et cetera. 
And that was the, that was quite good, exciting, it's interesting, good good story. But then other people started to get involved. As soon as they get involved, we have a moment. And we, we mess about this fit and proper person's test. We have a moment. And what we're actually saying then when people like Abramovich get involved and Kronky and Usmanov and all the rest of them, well, this is the moment in time when we've got to say, what do we want? I'll tell you what we wanted. We wanted to win as fans. We wanted to win. And people that came in with investment, we wanted to take their investment. We wanted to demand their investment. We wanted them to spend some effing money. Well, that's what we wanted because we wanted a better team to beat the team next door. That's what we want as fans. That's what we really want. Some people are more interested in the process, in the football, the analytics, blah, blah, blah. But the core of us is we want to win. While this was happening, and we all said it, these guys are investors. The investors put money into something to get a return. But while they're spending all this money and propping up clubs, at some point they're going to say, I want this back. So what do they turn? They turn to those same corrupt organizations, UEFA. UEFA, well, we get 3.2 billion from the Champions League and we'll speed it up as we feel. They're thinking, okay. Uh, FIFA, well, we're going to take your players and let them sleep in an airport overnight. I'm not giving you no financial recompense. They're thinking, okay, we have all the contracts, we have all the risk, we have all the salaries, we have all the expenses, and you're taking from that. We own all of the fans, we own all of the data for those fans, which means we can sell them multiple products. Now, we're talking billions of fans here. They own all of this linked to their clubs as memberships. And they're sitting there looking at these Timber organisations and saying, we're going to give you a chance. We're going to give you a chance. But let me tell you, if we break away, we can make this work. This moment has been in the post, and you've got to know your audience. How can you let a group of investors come in, take over these clubs, and sit there and imagine for a second they're not going to try to recoup the losses that they've made? Over the last year, these 12 clubs have lost 1.2 billion. That is pre-COVID times. The COVID losses are not there yet. Mm. So you sitting there thinking, hold on a minute, just just look, just look. I've got to get ahead of these guys, right? So I've got to get ahead of these guys. These guys are not billionaires because they throw money around. <laughs> They're billionaires because they don't, they know how to make money. And they'll take losses for a certain period of time and then they will react. And they have been threatening this and they're reacting. And what surprises me is that we're surprised. Know your audience. Know the people that are in charge. Know the people that you've allowed to be in charge. One one quick thing is, I didn't know this until today, but in Germany I have something called a 50 plus 1 rule where you have to have 50% of your club in ownership of the club itself, which means they can't be open to a... Kroenke or Abramovich, hence why they're not in the Super League yet. If we were serious about what Tim was talking about, about community clubs, we should have had similar rules in place in the English game to make sure these things couldn't happen. Because all we've done is allowed this to happen for the, for the I would not say greed of the fans, that's not the right thing to say, but I want to be better. And it's helped driven the Premier League, helped driven the TV con- contract, helped you in the most successful fantasy league in the world, but there's a price to pay if the other governing bodies don't buy into what we actually, people are investing, and we're about to pay that price in some form or another.
Yeah, I, I mean, it is greed and corruption all the way down. I mean, Arsene Wenger famously was asked, what would you do if you were given 100 million pounds to spend in the transfer market? And he said, I'd give it back. And, you know, there were a lot of people that are frustrated with that. Just spend some money, Arsene. Just go out and do it. This is what football's becoming. Well, now we're chasing what football's becoming, and it doesn't look so good. I mean, it's hard to have it both ways. This is a really, really difficult thing because, you know, I was listening to the Arscast, and they made the point that what difference does it make now where you finish in the league? And I see that. I definitely see that. But that's sort of been the reality for most clubs for the better part of two decades. Again, 96% of Champions League qualifiers are one of these big six teams. Um, The other thing is, before there was Champions League, there was the European Cup, and then you had to win the league to get in. So, you know, teams two through 16 had very little to play for. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly where the right moment is, right? Like, I mean, I think you could say, was football great in the 80s? when there was violence between fans and racism on the terraces and the, some of the disasters and, and terrible tragedies that we saw? Was football better in the 90s when the Premier League came around and the Champions League took form? It, it's hard to pinpoint that moment of football when you can say that was when the morals were right, that's when the ethics were right, that's when the community connection was right. And we're always sort of chasing that sense of what the right level is. That doesn't mean this isn't too far, by the way. Again, this could be absolutely too far, and I tend to think it is. And Paul, that's where I want to go to you. Um, I I want to break down a little bit more about what this does to football and, and what it would mean for football. And, you know, I know you're feeling really down about this, as, as we all are, but I am trying to, to distinguish what I think is terrible about it from what will genuinely be the impact on football. Um, first of all, I want to be clear about a few things. If you're looking for FIFA to be the moral guardian of football, I mean, you've you've fully given into the dark side. Um, you know, we've got a winter World Cup coming up that was bought and paid for in human misery and, and greed. Um, UEFA UEFA complaining about this is like if McDonald's moved into Naples, Italy, and I tried to open a Burger King across the street, and McDonald's rose up and said, "We need to defend the culinary traditions of Italy." I mean, that, that's all this is. UEFA's just mad because their Champions League's at stake, but. This does seem anathema to the spirit of competition that drives European football, whether you're totally on board with all the developments over the past 20, 30, 40 years. So what do you think are the real repercussions for the landscape of both European football and the Premier League if this does come to pass? So I think we're... I have the biggest... Where I see the biggest issue here is, because you're right, when was football perfect? When was it ethical? When was it not about profit? It, it, actually, for most of its history, it wasn't much about profit. Yeah, but not in it our was, lifetime. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, but, but even when it tried to be, that was quite a recent venture. Yes. Uh, and like, uh, you know, the Blackburn Rovers one is an interesting one because – that was a that was back in the day when a millionaire could do something with the club. They could buy a couple of play, you know. It it was such small beer, and it well it didn't last very. You know, it wasn't Abramovich. It didn't last very long. You know, he only had a certain amount of money. You could get a couple of players. A couple of players though would tip you the league because back in those days a millionaire was something, right? And then you needed a multimillionaire, and then it became billionaires. It's basically Moore's law, and the problem with that is there's always been it's always been a bit unfair. There's always been a bit of a differential. There's always been a little bit of the haves and have-nots. But as we've kind of seen 
with Moore's law and technology and things like Amazon.com and micro, you know, the, the, the difference between the haves and the have nots, the 1% and the 99%, it, it ain't, it ain't your grandmother's 99%, 1%. The divide, uh, so the, what's just happened now, the reason it's for me kind of traumatic compared to like UEFA and FIFA, they were crooks. But they were our crooks, right? <laughs> we understood them. They were they were Platini. He was one of us, you know. Um, you understood them. There was a continuity. It it was getting worse over time. It was getting more degra- degraded. It was getting more tawdry. But still, there was this continuity. Now, at some stage, it all goes off a cliff, and like maybe this just puts us out of our misery. Maybe it'll create this caste system where you have this European Super League and maybe the the English leagues and the football leagues below that will say screw this for a game of soldiers and in two or three years times uh, kind of reform around proper league football and you know who knows how this will play out but this is a massive disruption this is not just oh well UEFA and FIFA were corrupt so this is no different it, it may not be any worse but it's entirely another animal. The culture, like football is culture. We all know that. And, and right, it may have been changing too fast and it may have been losing its soul and it may have been divorcing itself gradually from its culture, but it was gradual. And this is a disruption. This is like you go to bed living on Pangaea and while you're asleep, the tectonic plates erupt and the continents drift to halfway around the world and the whole... Uh, structure of the planet you lived on is different, right? It's just torn apart, rent in twain. Um, and to Clive's point, we knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. That was one half of my brain. My other half of my brain says, no, you didn't, right? <laughs> Not like this, you didn't. Um, it's kind of like saying you know global warming is coming, but if you wake up one morning and the seas are on fire and the ice caps yeah, have the melted, and, and you're, yeah, you didn't really know it was coming. Yeah. It's not much comfort, and you don't know, like knowing and experiencing is a different kind of knowing, and we still haven't fully experienced this, but we knew within an hour yesterday this was different. I remember, like even with uh, Wenger's prognostications, he had been saying, hinting, predicting that the European, this Super League concept was coming. And then one week before he left the club, coincidence, he says something that is not he feels or he can see. He says it is coming. Oh, and by the way, it won't be on Wednesdays. They want to play on Saturdays. So put that one in your little notebook. Why do they want to play on Saturdays, not Wednesdays? That's where the money is. Mm-hmm. So it may start out with, oh, we'll play in on Wednesdays because that's tradition. No, if they want, if they did this for the money, they're going to take your Saturdays and Sundays too because that's when people watch and they want the money. And that statement, I remember hearing that and thinking, oh, okay, that's when I know this is actually happening. Not not when I see it's inevitable or I see how. When Wenger said that, I thought that's like the in the. Russell Crowe movie with the insider, right? That That's the guy telling you what is going on right now because he's in it. He doesn't like it. He's no longer about to be an employee of the company, so he does not have to quite 
respect his responsibilities anymore within the club. It reminded me of, not that I was alive at the time, Eisenhower's Beware the Industrial Military Complex, right? When the President of the United States tells you that, he's telling you because he's not predicting, he's seeing, he's been part of. Mm. Can I... Well, so so one of the things that I want to clarify, I think one of the worst arguments against this is that they picked the wrong clubs. Like, that's the bad one. If your argument is, well, how the heck did Arsenal get in there in ninth place? Or what do Spurs have? What what business? That is the wrong argument. Because that's basically saying, I don't have a problem with the structure. I have a problem with who they picked. It's not merit, meritocratic. This isn't attempting yeah. to be meritocratic on football basis this is attempting to be meritocratic on a business basis who will bring in the most right brand exactly paul Uh, who will bring in the most tv revenue and on that basis they picked right i mean i mean look they they need Bayern, they need psg they know they know that i'm sure that's probably going to happen but the fact is at the point that you're saying what makes it dumb is that they picked you know arsenal who are a crap club right now they're not wrong that arsenal are a crap club right now but that's the wrong argument because you're not arguing with the merits of actually doing this. And I think, by the way, one thing that doesn't help, dunking on the clubs that have been picked is just going to lead to the kind of tribalism that we're so used to where no one will be able to get on the same page in opposing that's this. true. I've already started to see, you know, people being like, like brands, Domino's put out a tweet that's like, oh, we have a new pizza topped with greed and avarice and some of the best uh, ingredients possible. And also there's Arsenal and Spurs. You know, it's like, okay, all that's going to do is get Arsenal and Spurs fans defending themselves and dividing everything up and being tribal. And like, if you want to really oppose this, you have to oppose it on a unified front that isn't based on which clubs got picked, but based on how it destroys football. So yeah, we saw with City in particular and their fans and their absolute denial that there's anything funky about the money in there. Like, to your point, if you alienate and attack the club and the fan base in particular, then the the fans tribalism will just will do its form thing. a wall. Yep, because yep. that's, that's what tribalism does. Uh, Tim, yep. the real worry is, is not what this does for European football, in my view. The real worry is what mm-hmm. it does for domestic football. And now we can uh, attack both of those issues because they are separate issues. But, the, you know, look, the, the problem with this uh, that I see for the Premier League, and let's get rid of one fiction right now. FIFA's not going to ban players from participating in the World Cup. The Premier League's not going to ban clubs from participating in the Premier League. They can't. They would cease to exist themselves. Um, You know, we'd love to be able to say, morally speaking, kick these six greedy bastards out of our league, and we'll keep having our league, and then see what the TV companies say when the premier game on a weekend is Wolves versus Brighton. They're just not going to pay the money. Um, so it is an unfortunate situation where they are held hostage this way. And in fact, in their bylaws, to change anything about the the league, I think they need three quarters of the teams, and they can't get yep. there without the six. So it's a moot point. But in terms of what this does to domestic competition, where do you stand on how this potentially, how it could potentially destroy the Premier League and why it might? I have some thoughts on why it might, but I'd love to to hear yours. Yeah, sure. I mean, to, to just as an aside on, on your point there about... Um, uh, you you were t- sorry. You were talking about um, the tribalism part or the. the tri- you know. uh, sorry, I've I've lost my train of thought. So no, I'll no, no. Because the, the, the other thing I was talking about was um, <laughs> the the money. If if the you're not going to see the players kicked out of FIFA, you're not going to see the players kick the teams kicked out of the league. So if either of those things jogs your memory. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's fine. I mean, 
what what it essentially does with the league is, and this is maybe maybe I'm misunderstanding here. Like, what's the point of the domestic league other than other than winning it? But do you know what I mean? One one of the things that I think has actually worked really well that not that that has absolutely evidently worked really really well for the Premier League is being able to tie the products to the Champions League, for example. So all of a sudden, finishing fourth means loads and loads and loads. And uh, it's almost like a, a a playoff system by the back door, right? One of the ways, one of the reasons you have playoffs um, in like the Championship, League One, League Two, and the National League, is because the leagues are big, and they didn't just want to give away the promotion spots to the top three, because then that's like that's over half the league who have nothing to play for. And so one one of the things that's worked really well about this relationship over the years and made the league more exciting is things like top, you know getting in the top 4 you know finish it, finishing fourth being like an achievement worth going for if you've got a closed super league like surely you lose that so surely now for arsenal like so what what becomes the difference between finishing for for the six, like for the big 6 what's the difference between arsenal finishing second and 15th if they've just got guaranteed entry into the European Super League. Now, I think the, the the money of the European Super League will also just go to make the league even less competitive than it already is. And that's going to be a problem for the Premier League as well, because one of the very delicate balances in this ecosystem is that, yes, it's got these six big clubs who are big, who are the biggest revenue drivers, but you also need a competitive league to make those matches interesting. And that's a very, very delicate balance that I'd say that the Premier League has probably just about been getting right, albeit I think the rise of the big six, it's started to move away from that a little bit I think it's only I accept that like Leicester and West Ham are, are really competitive um, this season I really do think a lot of that is down to the pandemic context um, maybe that's harsh on Leicester actually because they were they've been competing for a while I think what Leicester have done is had a freak season where they've won the league and they've been really smart with what they've been able to do with with some of the money that that's given them um, whereas West like West Ham are only competing for the top four because of the pandemic context, in my view. But so, I mean, it's it's really damaging for the Premier League in that respect if, like, the race for the top four stops becoming a thing. Look at the Premier League at the moment. Where's the intrigue? The, the relegated clubs are pretty much decided. Uh, one of them actually firmly already is, and the other two are pr- almost certain. The league title is decided, what else is there other than who's going to get in the top four? Can I ask and... you a question about that, though? Yeah, sure. And and I, look, I raised my hand. I wasn't a fan then. What was it like in 1990? Because that was the exact state of play then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's weird you ask that because it probably was slightly less interesting. But I think people were less invested. Um, not, not necessarily... Like just so, having a game to watch against a rival, a, yeah. a rival in the league was was an event. Was was what they yeah, cared about. It, it was it was a once a week thing, basically. Mm-hmm. It, well, maybe it was a twice a week thing. So basically, what used to kind of happen is you'd have a game on a Saturday, which you'd be wrapped up in for like your own reasons, and then 
you know, you might relive that result a bit on Monday morning when you go back to work and talk about it for 10 minutes. But like Tuesday to Friday, it basically didn't exist anymore. Whereas now it's a, it's like a 24-7 thing. So when but, Arsenal But finished, also, Tim, I mean, you'll know this more than I will. The Cups mattered, mattered yeah. more, right? Whether yeah. you won the FA Cup was a bigger deal pretty much than whether you won the league. Just yeah, but that could theoretically the be a one-game season for you if it went wrong. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It could. Well, and one of the reasons the Cups were so um, popular, uh, particularly the FA Cup, is precisely because it broke the monotony of the league season. So yeah. it is entirely so for a lot of clubs. Yeah, your your league season's over in January. I remember it happening to Arsenal loads. Like when you get to January, you'd be tenth. Sound familiar? And you'd go, oh, but the FA Cup's still here or like we're in the League Cup semi-finals or something. It kept the season meaningful for longer. Now, like with uh, the expansion of European competitions, the January transfer window, which for me has directly taken from the Cups because that is what keeps people interested in January now. They're not they're not bothered about the FA Cup third round. It's who is my club signing? So like a, a, a lot of you're right, like the, it, it was like it, it was probably slightly more dull, but in the kind of longer term aspect baked into that, there was more of a hope that you could do something every season. So if you, if you did, like if Arsenal did finish 10th one season, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, well, shit, we're going to finish 10th again next year. You might win the league next year. There was a lot more interchangeability. So even if an individual season eventually became boring, there was still the yeah, but we might we might win the league next year or come second or win the cup or something like that, whereas it's much more entrenched now. So f- for me, it's it's what how does the Premier League coexist with this European Super League when where you finish in the Premier League other than for a couple of teams because there are five spaces open and I guess that adds a bit of intrigue for the likes of, I don't know, Leicester, Everton, but that, that doesn't strike me as nearly as much as like the big six battling out for four places so if if the premier league is not tied to the european super league then where is the intrigue in the premier league anymore other than for the teams who are trying not to get relegated or the maybe one or two teams trying to win it 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 certainly raises the question tim that if this were to happen and if the premier league stays together as it currently exists and this sort of mcdonaldization of football occurs this americanization of football occurs does a premier league say we got to have a playoff we got to have a playoff system mm-hmm. to determine a champion and yep. if you're in the top six you make it and one plays six yep. and two plays five and now we have a round you know we have a knockout tournament at the end of the season to determine a title and have a super bowl and i know that people are throwing up listening to that and i get it it is against every I- single thing that makes football special but it would be the way they would get back what you're describing. Yeah, and and that's that's what they've done in the Football League, and it's been tremendously successful. Personally, I like the idea of a playoff system. I think a playoff system should have been introduced for the Champions League places. I'd love for, like, second to six, um, or second to fifth, or, like, third to six or whatever to battle out for... Champions League spots. I think that but would be great. Title. <laughs> no, 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 no. But you're right. Yeah. They probably yeah. have to introduce it for the title. Yeah, and that, and that is the thing. And look, there are people that would say like this just replaces the Champions League. Why is it a big deal? And then there are other people that say it's a big deal because no one can qualify for it. And then I would say 97 percent of the qualifiers over the last 20 years have been the same Big Six teams. But this is the problem. This new Super League will have so much money in it. You think City has distorted the competitive balance of the Premier League? What do you think it'll be like when there are six cities? 
So now, not only do you have a Super League that has no qualification capability, really, and is uncompetitive to the rest of the footballing pyramid, but now you have a Premier League where these teams drop back into the Premier League, play their second team on the weekends, and still dominate the league. The best example I can come up with is PSG. Look at PSG. They basically don't really care about the French League. They just basically don't. And they still are good enough just about dominate. Now, they're probably not going to win it this year because, they, again, they just don't care. So it's like whatever they can achieve with their superior squad, only half caring. And now you'll have six teams like that in the Premier League. And that is what I really worry about. You know, look, you want to create a walled-off competition? Like, it is what it is. Here's the funny thing. The, 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 the irony of this whole situation is that I think the real big driver for this is the move from football being about the match day, match going fans to the TV watching fans. This is really the crux of it. And this is why COVID has, has accelerated it because the match going, you know, look, I lived in New York city. I loved going to Yankees games. It was so much fun. You know how much I cared about the Yankees? Not at all, but tickets were affordable. I could get there easy, drink a lot of beer in the sun, eat a really crappy hot dog, have a great day out. So to your point, Tim, who cares if you're winning the league or finishing 15th or finishing 17th if you can watch Arsenal beat Spurs with a few beers with your mates at the stadium? That's a great experience, even if you're not really competing for anything. But to the person in Nigeria or Beijing or Indianapolis watching on TV who can't be there having beers at the stadium, they don't care about Arsenal-Fulham when it's a battle for ninth. They don't care. And so now football has to serve that audience that only cares if the games matter. Whereas the people at the stands, the people on the ground, the people who go to the games, that's fun whether the game matters or not. I mean, think about this. Think about the number of fans that come out for preseason tournaments when Arsenal travel the world. Those games don't matter at all. But people go to those games like their life depends on it. Because it's fun to see your team in person. It's fun to drink beers with your friends and be out for the day. But for the TV-watching audience, you don't get that. And so now suddenly it has to be about something else. And this whole chase for more money and more TV viewership is about satisfying fans who can't experience the match day experience in the same way. And so they need it to matter. And for it to matter, they have to be in the biggest competitions. And it all spins off from there. Clive, I have a big question for you about this, but but Paul, you want to add for 30 seconds? Yeah, on the comparison between, you know, what we had versus what we're going to in Europe and, and what the difference is, like one of the key differences that the Champions League and the Europa League are connected to the leagues. They're an extension of them. It's, they're kind of an extension of the pyramid. So in England, you have the four leagues and you have the opportunity to get into Europe and uh, and it's all connected and it may not have been perfect in the division the separation between those clubs who were continually in there, like you're listing the the clubs who now win it, it it's a fi- it's it's pra- it's a de facto kind of closed club. Well, it's not quite, um, and there's there's the hope and sometimes the reality of the ability, the mobility to move up and down the chain. But it was also reformable. Now, maybe it would never have been reformed, but it was connected, so it was reformable. They could have done better redistribution of funds. They they could have done more with the Premier League going forward, and now that's dead. You, 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 there's no way the, the ESL is going to suddenly say, we're going to do a massive redistribution of funds, given how far it's gone the other way. So mm-hmm. I think like no matter how much you say, well, how different is it really – 
that was reformable. That was tweakable, changeable over time based on things getting worse. You can then respond to it. There's kind of the potential for feedback loops. And uh, and maybe that was all a mirage. We would never have done what needed to be done to reform either the Premier League connected to the other leagues or the uh, CLEL connected to the football leagues. But at least it was all connected and there was the potential there if when we all finally saw sense and this is a rupture this is a this is a caste system there's no movement uh the people at the top are keeping it all yeah and, and clive i mean look the one thing we can all agree on they are doing this for naked greed that's why they're doing it to make more money to keep more money this arms race of spending doesn't work because right now i mean look at newcastle the only hope their fans had for their club to improve was to have you know a Saudi Arabian owner come in and buy them and turn them into the next city. That can't be the right model either. I hope a sugar daddy comes and buys us and we can be relevant. Um, this arms race is, is not going to work. And to your point, the losses during COVID have been over a billion pounds, but it was just going to go this way more and more because the revenues were never going to be able to keep up with the spending that was needed to get to the top of the game. And so this is naked greed. These, these people want to have their clubs earn the most money, turn the most profits, become the biggest assets, and they want to do it at the expense of any club that's not involved. And that is why I, I find it extremely unseemly while also knowing exactly why they're doing it. Um, what do you think the risk is that this does cause domestic football to wither and die? That their long game is they start to, they, they get this off the ground and they play midweek and the, the leagues go on. And it sort of looks the same for a bit, but then they announce there's an expansion and they're going to take in 10 more permanent teams to, to expand it to, to 30. And then they close off the qualification teams, but they expand it to 40. And then they say we're moving to the weekend. And then the domestic competitions become like a vestigial organ. They just wither and die. I mean, do you think the long game here is they want an NFL in Europe. They want a closed league that plays on the weekends, that turns profits, and they don't want to have to go send their players to play in other competitions, and that's what they're shooting for. I'm, I'm not sure if they've got a massive long game, but they've definitely got a medium and short game, and and that is to control their expenses and control their revenues. And it's simple as that. Things like, you know, you guys know this, right? The waste caps. You know, they talk about 55% of revenues, the maximum you can spend. But they can make revenues quite even. Then salaries become quite even. They know their maximum expense. And then they can build on their revenues. They can add a Disney. They can add a Netflix-type app. They can add all of these things we've spoken about in the past, which are totally untapped. They're absolutely untapped. So while I'm watching Sky TV today over here and they are dying, they are scrambling, they're trying to get fans on board, they're trying to show people, I mean, demo, they're doing everything in their power to try to create something. I'm thinking, mate, you were the same ones that charged us 15 quid for mm. Fulham Brighton. Mm. You see what I mean? You, I know it's club driven, but, you know, Tim has been, <laughs> Tim goes to a lot of football matches, right? And he will tell you, on a Monday night football, they don't care. They push a game to Monday night, and it's a away day, and the trains are, the trains are stopping, and people are having to leave the game before the end of the game to catch the last train. No one cares about those people then, you know. And when you do this sort of travel, and I've done it in the past, you realise how little people care about you. It's just about the money, and 
everybody's the same. But what's happening now is the the people that are driving this are just, are the, I'm afraid they're the smartest people in the room. They are the smartest people in the room. They are thinking, oh, they are way ahead of these organizations, intelligence-wise. They're bound together, drive this and put out the window. They know there's money to be had. But sitting there in Barcelona, who are number one in the Forbes list, they're 1.3 billion in debt, which should never happen, by the way. And they're thinking, well, we've got a route out here. The Premier League is just stomping all over all these leagues. It's um, it's uncomfortable. I don't like it for somebody who's involved in the lower end of the game. Having the dream taken away is not is not great for clubs all the way down the pyramid. Um, people live by those dreams, and one day we can win the European Cup type dreams. A lot of that's under threat. When it's initially broke, I thought, you know what, this is posturing. This is about position. This is about a bigger slice of the pie. The more this goes on, and it may not happen, but the more I feel after this that things won't be the same again. I think people have revealed themselves in such a way that forces you to do a review of your thinking about your involvement in football, your investment in football, how you want to invest, how you want to engage. I think a lot of people are going to do a review of this. And they'll realize, I hold a minute here, we've had the wall put over our eyes by so many people. And that reaction and adaptation to this new environment and mass information, which we know we're going to be on Twitter now for next week, until somebody does something major. For example, um, Europa League semi-finals. I was, so, I was so excited for them. Now I'm wondering, should I be excited? Should hey, get us into excited? the Champions League. <laughs> <laughs> well, are we going to be kicked out of the Europa League at the end of the week? That's being mooted, right? All these clubs were kicked out of European competitions. Is that going to happen? So it's all. Uh, up I think in the we end. should have our team with their bags ready just in case they need somebody to play PSG. We're ready, <laughs> exactly. And so what you've you've sort of you've destroyed those the structures by which we all live, and that's a real shame. It can change in an email. You know how these things work. It can change in an email. But I'm I'm really concerned about the damage to people's connection to the game of football. And that was already something that we've been talking about for many, many weeks, you know, wrapped around Project Big Picture and VAR, etc. But this is, this is just another thing that has come along and really made us think, mm. wow. I've got to review my myself. I've got to review this. And um, I'm sure we're not the only ones going through that process. Let me ask you just, Clive, real quick. What do you think the odds are it happens? I mean, I, I think with Project Big Picture, we kind of you know saw them do a trial balloon. Maybe there's some sense that this is also a trial balloon and, and a negotiating tactic with UEFA in the same way Project Big Picture was with the Premier League. But by the same token, J.P. Morgan Chase doesn't just pony up a few billion dollars of financing and you don't quit the ECA and, you know, get this close to the ledge if you don't have the wherewithal to jump is my view yeah to get that five billion from jp morgan trust me that's not just a, a quick process that's something that's been discussed in the past in my previous you know in my working life i've flown to manhattan and had to do go to financial meetings for a lot less than five billion and trust me every dollar counts we go to those mahogany rooms it's a serious room and so that was taking a lot of people a lot of time. So this is more, this is real. Something is happening here. You know, and I thought it was posturing. 
but I don't think it is. Something's happening, and whatever happens, I think football is going to change permanently. Yeah, it, it, I'm really, really nervous that they may kill the goose that laid all these golden eggs. I'm really nervous about it, and I mean, I, I'm nervous. That's why my friends call me Whiskers because I'm a worrier. But like. The, the the thing that concerns me, look, the American model works. You may hate it, but it does work. And much like I said at the top of the of the, the podcast, I don't want to go to McDonald's in Italy. I want to go, you know, eat in an authentic restaurant that serves the the cultural the the fo- the food that respects the cultural traditions. I I love football for all of its cultural tra- traditions. Although I'm not sure any of us can agree what those traditions are. Um, <laughs> you know because. It's changed so much over the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But this this feels like it could it could fracture. And the problem with the American system, you know, Tim, there was no, you know, when the NFL formed it, it merged with the AFL, the whole long thing. And, um, you know, they, they became one league and there was a Super Bowl. And when there was one Super Bowl, it was the first one. There had never been one before. But there was one then. And now here we are, you know, 40 later or 50 later, whatever the heck it is, um, if you can read Roman numerals. And and now it matters. Uh, tradition takes time to develop. So two yeah. things here. I mean, one is, I think the biggest issue with trying to say, oh, well, this is just an American system, is the American system wasn't built on the by breaking the backs of other clubs with hundreds of years of proud tradition. If this had to be developed... It's being developed through the tears and broken dreams of other fan bases and other clubs without their say-so. It is the least democratic process imaginable. The other, So, you know, maybe you can sort of opine on... You, I, the best way you can put it is this. If they made this announcement, but we weren't one of the teams, it would literally feel like the door to the club was being closed and locked and we couldn't get in ever. Um, mm-hmm. You are... You know, it's, it's like uh, in the zombie movie where they're running into some safe place or whatever, and they have to close the door because the zombies are coming, but like one non-zombie doesn't get in in time, and like you're just out there with the zombies now, and you know what it means. You're going to become a zombie. These other clubs are now looking like they're going to be zombie clubs. So mm-hmm. that that's the thing. I mean, yeah, if I have to choose between Arsenal being in it and not in it, I choose in it, but I cannot get away from the, the feeling that you're zombifying the rest of the footballing universe, and that's just not okay. The system now do- isn't great. But there's at least the illusion that we're all individual actors with our own self-determinism, self-determinism, if you follow me. This, This eliminates any illusion that that exists whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons it feels so unfair, um, how, however much you, you you value fairness in this whole thing, the whole reason it feels unfair is because, um, football, football, soccer, whatever you want to call it, is one of the biggest uh, cultural phenomena on the planet. It is one of the biggest cultural phenomena that humankind has ever devised. Um, you know, it's not far off religion in terms of its its reach and popularity. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, it's it can, it can saddle up to that table. Um, and, and that is because of like hundreds in the case of the UK and thousands of football clubs have all contributed to that. And basically 12 clubs had said, yeah, thanks for that. Um, We're going to take all of the the credit and the spoils for that now. 
And um, and it, what's quite interesting about this as well is like a Super League, whenever it happens, it's an arbitrary, ti- an arbitrary time, right, to just draw that line in the sand and say, we are the Super Clubs now, so now we're the Super Clubs forever. Like, if you put a Super League together 20 years ago, Manchester City and Chelsea would be absolutely nowhere near it. Um, neither would PSG if you'd have done it 10 years ago it'd look different and from an Arsenal perspective if it happened in another 10 years we'd probably be nowhere near it either and neither would AC Milan so um, from from um, you know the Cronkies and Ivan Gazidis um, that name sound familiar to anyone yeah. this this is the, the imperative is to do it now because Arsenal and Milan are fading forces and in another 10 years AC Milan probably wouldn't be invite, invited Napoli would Arsenal probably wouldn't be invited. Um, so so th- there's there's kind of all of that um, floating around in there as well. I, th- I think really, you're right, like the current system isn't perfect. I Personally, I'm, I don't object to the idea of like a pan-European league. I, we've basically got one already with mm. the Champions League and with, you know, the yin and yang and the haves and have-nots that that all provides. And you're right, it's not perfect. I wouldn't necessarily be against um, that. Yeah, the the idea of a pan-European league, and I think there there could be really good, exciting ways to do it as well. Um, you know, essentially just hoovering up a lot of the clubs that are in the Champions League and just changing the format um, a little bit. I, th- I think that could really work. And but but that's not what this is about because once you start saying that people. Uh, that certain clubs have like just a god-given right to be there. It's it's not a co- like it's not a competition anymore. And so what's what's really really interesting about this? I know like Rory Smith, um, he he wrote the phrase in his New York Times article: "This isn't competition, it's content." Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. absolutely right because a lot of the sporting imperatives have been moved. And and you know you could argue that you know, from Arsenal's perspective, a more American model, for example, you might argue that Arsenal have got more chance of winning the Super League than the Premier League because, you know, you you look down the line, there will probably be spending caps, there will probably be salary caps and stuff like that. They will probably do all of the things that the Premier League and UEFA never really got to grips with, um, out of self-interest, obviously, because it will make the clubs cheaper to run and it will remove that imperative where the Cronkies have to dip into their pockets to help buy Thomas Party because we must... a squad of 23 highly talented players, no duds, Yep. So any actually any one of those teams could strike gold and just have the right combo and the right balance and the right coach. Yep. Paul, and they we'll, could absolutely we'll be City. Win it. All, all six Premier League teams in the yep. ESL will be City, essentially, because yep. the yeah, their yeah. relative financial might versus the other Premier League teams will be cavernous and not a and not a chasm that can be overcome just by being clever. Like as we've seen, cleverer clubs have overtaken us, but they can't overtake City. You, you just won't be able to overtake these teams. Yeah, yeah, and and this is this is kind of worse for the players as well because it takes away a lot of their choice, which means that they will probably get paid less anyway. Because what you know, if someone tries to hold Man City to ransom for a contract, they'll go, all right, <laughs> take your chance with someone who's not. You know, there will be an understanding between these clubs, and it is not a coincidence whatsoever that Arsenal put the statement out on Sunday night and they are talking to the players on Monday. They haven't even spoken to the players about this, um, let alone the fans. And and ultimately, the players are the ones that could say, well, I don't want to play. I don't think that's going to happen. But they could say, well, we're not going to play in this. 
Um, but there is a reason that they have consulted the players after the fact because this isn't entirely great for them because it restricts a lot of their kind of um, employment opportunities in reality. So there's there's an awful lot behind this that's that, that's really really interesting. Um, you know, you could say it might it might be a more competitive league and things like that, and it might lead it will probably lead within those clubs to more responsible spending and and things like that, but. The, the, it's it's the fact that it's the closed door that is the real kicker here there there would be a lot more pros to this maybe not more pros than cons but there would be more pros without that kind of it being hermetically sealed off and add to your point Elliot again that you know the structure of European football has not been built that way it's different in you know in other sports and in some other countries where that has been like the founding principle of the formation of the sports that that just isn't how it's worked so yes absolutely like this will be you know th- this will be um there will be losses to lots and lots of clubs um it's like that principle right um that money's a finite resource you cannot have billionaires without um, hunger and poverty you can't money is finite that is not how it works and this is the same thing more money and resource for these clubs means less for other clubs it is that simple yeah it's I, always ahead, been Paul. unequal can i just say uh, but yeah it is unequal, right now <laughs> yeah but a little bit unequal is actually that's life that's good yeah. we can all respond to the little team taking on the big team if they have a bit of a chance right mike tyson old Mike Tyson or younger Mike Tyson <laughs> taking on a guy in an, he finds in an alleyway is not sport, but taking on the contender who's maybe not quite there yet, but might be that's sport. Is it? But, but Some can I make inequality, one point about that? Yeah, that inequality is, wasn't meritocratic in the first place, right? Like city city don't have their financial might through years of becoming a superior organization. They have it because someone decided to buy them and, and, just start funding them. So it wasn't yeah, yeah. meritocratic it, it, inequality. Sure, sure. Uh, and it's gotten worse. Like, that's why it's not it's not linear. There is this, it has been devolving over time. It's gotten worse and worse. It's, you know, the Premier League was an acceleration. But you get, you look at the 60s and 70s and there was inequality there. But like, literally, if a guy bought your club, he was just about a millionaire, right? He'd buy a couple of players, It'd be for a few years. It's not. It wasn't this thing it is now, and now we've gone on to this whole other thing, which is a rupture to even the kind of devolving situation we have. Um, it, we've gone from bad to just other. This These is clubs other. cannot be regulated. They are owned by nation states. They are owned by people yeah. whose wealth puts them outside the control of even the organizing bodies and the nations within which they operate. You know, UEFA got away from us. Yeah. yeah, UEFA can't control them, and and nor can the Premier League, and they can't live without them. That you know, the, the problem is they have drank from the poison chalice, and now they are at its mercy. They sold their soul. Once yeah. you sell your soul to the devil, you can't say to the devil, "I want to change the terms of the deal." The Premier um, League. Yeah, go ahead, please. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and what's really interesting in the UK is the UK government is speaking out about this. Um, in fact, there was a government source who said this is uh, for the elite, by the elite. This is the Conservative Party yeah. <laughs> saying yeah. that. But what, what they really mean is 
the Premier League is really good for the UK economy and we want it to stay here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't we don't want pan-European. We've just come out of the EU as well, but that's probably it's, it's like we don't want like the resource being spread out across Europe and we don't want these games because inevitably these games they haven't called it the European Super League, have they? They've called it the Super League and that's so that they can get to the stage where the games aren't hosted in Europe and they don't want that. They want the Champions League games at the Emirates at the Etihad and places like that and that, that's another dimension to it. It is scary because it brings everything onto the table. Teams moving to new cities, clubs from other continents, um, the the elimination of domestic competition altogether. Once you do this and create a closed league, you then have the ability with your closed league to run it however you want to maximize revenues. And look, Stan Kroenke, the Rams moved from L.A. to St. Louis. And they moved from St. Louis to L.A. And the Cleveland Browns moved to Baltimore, and beca- or the Colts, sorry, moved to Baltimore and became the Ravens. And then the Browns moved to Indianapolis and became the Colts. And then a new team formed in Cleveland and became the Browns. This, this is all on the table now. There's, there is no need for any of the traditions that underpin football to be respected by this over the long term. And that, I think, is the scary thing for me, is that you can look at this and say, in the short term, it just looks like one thing replacing another thing that wasn't perfect. A Super League replacing a Champions League. That really, yeah, okay, I guess it was competitive, but it was the illusion of competitiveness. Now there isn't competitiveness, but I don't see the difference. The difference is a closed league, not beholden to the organizing bodies, can be changed in whatever way they want to maximize revenue. And at the point that they decide that the thing that's best for revenue for Arsenal is for Arsenal to be in Los Angeles, and the thing that's best for revenue for Real Madrid is for Real Madrid to be in London, I mean, this kind of stuff can happen. I know it sounds bonkers, but, you know, if you're telling me you're creating an American model, that's the model. The model is go where the money is at, at any expense, no matter who gets hurt. Because, yes, there'll be angry fans in London, but there'll be euphoric fans in L.A. And, yes, there'll be angry fans in Madrid, but there'll be euphoric fans in Rome or whatever the case may be. And you lose the traditions. And then the question becomes, how important is tradition to why we care about this? I mean, Clive, let's say Arsenal got in the Super League and the first season won it. Would you care? Well, I mean, the Champions League only started existing in 1992. How long does it take for a tradition to matter? How long does it take before you'd say you'd care about this if you ever would? What what do you think the adoption is? Are we so naive? I mean, would this be uh, as spectacularly popular as the founding clubs obviously think? Or is it possible that people will draw a line in the sand and say, this doesn't, re- this doesn't even resemble the thing I cared about. I'm out. Yeah, it, it could. You know, we adapt real quick. You know, when Arsene Wenger said a few years ago that the top four is out winning a trophy. Well, everyone laughed at him. A few years later, people are getting fired for not making the top four. Well, and now a few yes. years later, people are, are bemoaning the fact that that top four trophy is going away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we adapt real quickly. And normally money drives that adaption. You know, um, the Champions League has basically killed the FA Cup. Would you believe it? It's FA Cup semi-final weekend this weekend. And that's normally a massive weekend in the calendar. It just sort of breezed past, didn't it? I watched those games. They were watch them. They were shocking, you know, shocking games. And I feel for the. And we've won these trophies recently, but I feel for those clubs this weekend because they were nothing, nothing events. Um, and so we do adapt really, really quickly. And again, I, I, 
I don't want to be flippant about this sort of thing, but just 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 ask yourself the question. I think the biggest question is, how have we got here? That's the question we really need to think about. What happens going forward? That's already that that's already mapped out. We're heading this way in some form or another. We're heading this way. It's just can we control the journey, right? Because, and for me, the key thing is control the journey to try to keep the sporting integrity of the sport intact. But I say that, and I'm going to criticise myself when I say that because I wake up to listen to um, to watch LA Laker games at three in the morning sometimes to see how they're doing. Right, they're not going to get relegated, but I'm still like keen to see how they do. Do you see what I mean? And so the history of sport in, in America versus what we've got over here is slightly different, but I still care about the Lakers, and I'm sure I would care about Arsenal going forward. Those people are saying, I'm not going to support Arsenal again. I'm sorry, mate, I'm not with you. You know, well, I'll support Arsenal wherever they are, whether they're in the National League or in the, any league. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna do that, just the way I'm wired. But I do worry about the sport and integrity of the game, really, and what I, what I recognise. Um, but I'm starting to realise for myself on a personal level is I've long since detached part of myself from what I used to do as I was growing up. Uh, what I used to do, 30 game seasons, travelling all around, getting drunk in all the grounds, all the rest <laughs> of it. Um, I no longer have that experience. I feel for the younger people who are going to miss out on that. Um, the terrace experience. I, I have had that. And I've recently changed how I look at football, changed how I watch football, changed how I analyse football, and then added something else to my football, which is non-league football. Because I believe the soul of the game is within the grassroots, and I still can do a little bit of what I did when I was growing up. Add everything together. I have my football experience, including this podcast. I think that's what people are going to do. They're going to find their way. You know, they're going to find their way to engage. And I think that's the that's the key thing. But if we ask ourselves the question, how have we got here? And we're really honest. We've been foolish. We've been foolish as fans. We've been foolish to allow these TV companies to do what they've done to us. We've been foolish to allow them to move kickoff times around on us. It's all about diluting our impact to the game as as the watching fan. And really, this has just made everything completely transparent and it's quite unedifying what's actually going on at the moment. And I've I, I said it before, I just feel dreadfully depressed, but also a bit upset with myself for allowing myself to, to feel this way when everything was staring me in the face saying, you idiot, you knew this was coming, mate. Why, do you, why didn't you recognise and protect your emotions? Because... Um, this is exactly who they are. It's been part of your whole life. It's like try, trying to tell yourself you shouldn't feel bad about kind of turning your back on a family member. I mean, you, you just can't do it. it. It's part of you. It's a limb. So yeah. This is the boiled frog analogy, guys. This is the boiled frog analogy. Yeah. They have been boiling us for 20, 30 years. And because we're in the water and it's just getting hotter and hotter, we're not having that pain reaction. But what they're doing here is dropping the frog into the already boiling water. Uh, if you don't know this analogy, if you put a frog in water and turn it up to boil, the frog won't actually know what's happening and just boil to death. But if you drop a frog into boiling water, it'll hop out. This, this change that's slow and substantial 
people will go along with it. Change that is immediate and uh, and this disruptive, people are obviously going to have a reaction to. And I, I just think we've been boiling for years, but this this is so dramatic and so instantaneous that it's noticeable. Uh, sorry, Clive, I cut you off. You had more you were you were saying there. No, no, that's really good. That's really good. I think what's happening in sport and particularly in football is there's, there's no fans in the ground. It's almost though the eyes of the world is not on the game. If I think Liverpool played tonight, and if they were, if there was forty five thousand in that stadium, there'd be a reaction. There'd be a huge reaction. It would be reported on and and embellished. There is going to be none of that. You know, there's going to be none of that. We've been kept out of the ground in these COVID wells. I think. I think. I, I really do feel that the government and some of the, the authorities have looked at these clubs and said, you've lost money, fine. You buy this player and you buy this player on X 100,000 a week. So you guys have got enough money. Not only got enough money to look after yourselves, you've got enough money to look after the pyramid as well. Can you give some money down the leagues? And the government in the UK has just sat there and used footballers has kicked it around when they wanted to, when the players hug each other. And then when they look for support, all the way down the pyramids, very minimal, offering loans, shocking. Now they're squealing. They should. They need to think ahead, think ahead, and say, "I we need to do something here." Because if they were to take all of that money away, then what? Um, there's a guy. Is it Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary? He's about to make a statement any moment soon. I'm not sure what it is. He's as wet as a fish. I don't care what he says, right? He's nothing compared to these guys. They can put some super taxes in place, all the rest of it. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. They may stop this in the near term, but the die has been cast. I'm telling you now, the die has been cast, and there's going to be damage. Alia Yakta Est, Clive. Alia Yakta Est. <laughs> the die has been cast. There's going to be real damage, and this is going to go on and on and on. And I'm not sure, I'm genuinely not sure where this is going to end directionally in, in the short to medium term. But in the medium to long term, this is where we're heading. Tim? Yeah, I, I just wanted to come in on one of Clive's points about, um, you know, talking about protecting himself from this when, when it happened. See, I, I feel I've done that to a degree, which is not to say I still felt like a gut punch when this was all announced. And when I woke up this yeah, morning, so. I kind of felt like... Um, you know, when you lose like a North London derby or something and you wake up and you have that five seconds where you're quite happy, you don't remember. It, and then you go, oh, yeah, that happened, didn't it? Like that happened to me this morning. Nevertheless, my reaction to this is much less visceral. And the reason for that for me is Baku. Um, Baku and that Europa League final, that for me was the visceral moment. That for me was um, was a real break. Um, and obviously, like I'm still incredibly involved with uh, before the pandemic, going to Arsenal games and stuff like that and, and doing all of this, like I'm still very heavily involved um, with Arsenal. But it's the first time in my life I've chosen not to go to games uh, since Baku. Um, and I've, I've taken like a real emotional distance. And it's because I recognised Baku as a dry run. I recognised um, not so much that we were guinea pigs like because Baku was a horrible experience right the the city was um not prepared uh, for it wasn't really interested in the game it was all catered towards locals UEFA didn't want fans of Arsenal and Chelsea from London there at all it wasn't even about like oh they're an afterthought like they didn't want us there 
Um, and that was made abundantly clear when we arrived inside the stadium and we had the worst seats. Both sets of fans were allocated, a tiny allocation, and they had the worst seats in the stadium. It's very obvious what they were doing. So I always recognised Baku for me as an emotional breaking off point, which isn't to say, when I say an emotional breaking off point, I didn't stop caring, obviously, but I cared a lot less and I have cared a lot less since yeah. then. And so I, I feel like I've been maybe even subconsciously, actually, I think consciously, because I've written about it a few times, protecting myself ever since then. Mm, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. just to add on just to add on to that I mean I've done the same and that's why I'm involved in non-league <laughs> I've just divided myself up a little bit more because you know Tim let's be honest you, you was in Paris 2006 right and do you remember yep. how the stadium was divided up we took all that time <laughs> yes. getting there and there was like a little section of about 17,000 at each end. Remember about 15,000 at each end? And all mm. these dark suits down all both sides. And that was a message, wasn't it? That was a message yep. even then. 2006, the most oversubscribed game in the history of the Champions League. You could barely get in as a fan, if you, as, a, as a, you know, full of neutrals. And that was a message. Going around Paris in those daytimes, you wait for cars everywhere. It was a message. The hotel I was staying in, the nice hotel, you wait for reps all over it. I'm thinking, my goodness, I've waited all my life to get here and I can barely recognise the moment. Do you know what I mean? And this has been coming, this has been coming. They they care about us, but they don't care. They don't care. Yeah. You know what's funny? Is it like, you could convince me that a closed European Super League of maybe, let's say, 50 teams is a better outcome because you can cap spending, you can control the way spending is done, you can do trades instead of transfers, you can rein in the money, you can make the game more about tactics and balance and, and teams that are well run can win it every few years and everyone can have a shot and it's not just the same retread teams doing the same retread stuff. I wonder if the opposition to this would be different if it was bigger. It feels so small. And maybe that is their long game, which is, that they know they couldn't replace domestic leagues right away. That would be met too hostily. They couldn't force that through. So they start small. They have the small group of founding members. And then there's an expansion like we see in the American systems. And then there's another expansion. And when they get to the size that they're targeting, they move it to the weekends and they destroy the domestic leagues. And I'm not saying that's a good outcome, by the way. But I, I could see that being the outcome they're chasing. Paul, one of the things that I think is interesting, there's a lot of people, you know, bemoaning what's being lost here. And one of the things that's being lost, the Champions League theoretically could still exist, but at its best, it becomes the Europa League, right? Because you're going to have Leicester versus Villarreal in the final, which I'm not saying that's not a great competition, but the viewing numbers tell you what it is. It's it's not the Champions League. It's something else. So for people who say, you know, my whole life, all I wanted was for Arsenal to lift the European trophy, to lift the European Cup, and now they never will, and this is heartbreaking, and we, we lose that. That was something so special that I, I wanted for our club how does a new thing ever start to matter? Like the Champions League wasn't a thing and it became a thing and the Premier League wasn't a thing and it became a thing and, you know, the Super Bowl wasn't a thing and became a thing. Do you, could you see a future where Arsenal lifting the Super League trophy will matter to you in the way that chasing the European Cup could have mattered to you? Uh, no, I don't think it won't matter, but it won't matter in in the same way or to the same emotional extent it won't reach as deep but i i'd question the the champions league didn't exist and then it did there was always the european cup and it was different very different and there were fewer teams in it uh 
but there was there was a lineage there, even if it's even if they had to do some papering over the cracks to make it the same thing. And the Europa League was, I guess, the European Cup Winners' Cup, and there was the Fairs' Cup. Not like there were predecessors, and you could see why these things were at least nominally improvements, enhancements, upgrades. This this thing is a total different. This is a a rupture. It's a whole other thing. It's not an evolution, an upgrade, a change. It's just it's a whole other thing. Um, like we're we are creatures of narrative of even if it's somewhat pastiche or somewhat manufactured. Uh, when you look back through the realities of football history, as things changed and changed substantially, there's a continuity, a connection. Uh, we'll probably be called the Arsenal Londoners rather than the Gunners, so that people can quaintly remember where the team was originally from when we're based in L.A. Um, you know, you need those connections to something in the past. It'd be nice if they were real. Um I mean that's that's probably that's probably way more cynical than I actually feel about it. Um, I'll I'll care. It's kind of like you're in love with a beautiful woman and these bad guys steal her and drive her across the border. That's what they've done with my club. I'm still I'm still going to care about her. I still want her back. I'm I'm still going across the border to try and get her back. I'm still going to follow Arsenal. I'm still going to be. Uh, watching them and part of this ESL thing, but it it won't it won't feel the same. It may feel important. It may move me. I may get excited about it. I'm sure I will. Um, what'll take me there is that I'm already connected to the team, the uh, the other supporters that are part of this 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 ecosystem we're in, the players, the coach. Um, our stadium, uh, the remnants of the connections with the past. So that'll bring me along for for a little while, for a few years, till I start to care about the rivalries and the histories here. It won't be the same. It'll be different. It'll be better in some ways. Um, in some ways, it's less my club and the ESL. I, well, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I guess what I'd really love is they if they sealed the whole thing off, and so that the rest of football, the rest of the Premier League could go back to effectively being the first division and actually get back to playing football. And there'd be a whole world that didn't revolve around this thing. And this can be the mega league and be separate. And the rest of football can stop, you know, kind of bowing down to the uh, how do we be one of those teams that gets accepted into it in the future? If they just seal the bloody thing off then you wouldn't need oligarchs coming into the first division to buy teams so they could be become the top European. There'd be no way to become the top European team. The people who wanted to own those clubs would own those clubs because of what they are, the first division, English football, French football, German football. That's it. You want to buy a club, buy a club, but you won't be buying it to whitewash your country because the European glory won't be there. The vast future riches won't be there for American owners or for billionaire British or European or Asian billionaires. You'll buy a club because you want to own a club in the, the first division. Seal the bloody thing off, pull up the drawbridge forever, and 
you know, pick your 20, 30 teams and have that thing. But, you know, the, the, the drawbridge is don't pull it up three quarters of the way so that you're enticing these other the English first division slash premier league to, to be the worst of all worlds, to still be kowtowing to try and get into this thing and people throwing ridiculous monies at it that distort it on the hope that they might become, you know, to seal it off and let football beyond below the ESL get back to being football. And it'll be a great competition and people will go and watch their teams locally and then there'll be this ESL thing, which will be a bit like watching the NBA. And mm. it's it's sad and happy. It's sad. It's good that Arsenal are part of it. And it's sad that it won't be part of this other thing. But we might look at that other thing and say, oh, it'd be kind of cool if we were back in that thing. That's actual real football as we knew it. Tim, I'm going to use an analogy here. I feel like there's one beating heart of football. And we're not really sure what it is. But, the, you know, if you think about a body, the, the heart beats and pumps blood and oxygen to, to all the different uh, areas of the body, all the different extremities. If you cut off one of the extremities such that the heart can't plump, pump the blood and the oxygen to it anymore, it dies. What I can't figure out yet is which one of these extremities will die. Will the Super mm. League find that it has cut itself off from the beating heart of football and actually just die and not survive? Or will the beating heart become the Super League and the other thing dies? I struggle to see them coexisting. And one thing that I find, you know, when I try to explain football to Americans who don't follow it, one of the single hardest things for me to explain to them is, well, on weekends we play in the Premier League, and in midweek we play in the Champions League, except right now we don't play in the Champions League, we play in the Europa League. Um, oh, Paul's got to go. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Paul. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye, bud. Good job. Oh. Um, so, you know, on the weekends we play in the Premier League, and midweek we play in the Champions League, but actually not right now. Right now we play in the Europa League, and then sometimes on the weekends we actually don't play in the Premier League if we're still in the FA Cup. Like, it is a sprawling, confusing system that once you're in it feels so unique and special and important and fun. But in terms of enticing new people in, just saying, hey, here's this one league with all the best teams follow this. It's easier to attract new people. And Tim, like it, Clive and I were discussing this the other day. You know, right now there's probably a million people watching Ninja stream League of Legends on Twitch. The world is changing in ways that many of us can't even fathom and comprehend. And... Mm -hmm. Football wants to continue to be relevant for a new generation of people. And I, I think these owners, they want the broadcast money. They know that that situation is changing. And I think they're trying to change it with a very clean, clear, easily packaged content, as we've discussed, to yep. continue to be able to secure the massive revenues they need from broadcasters who may increasingly become streaming services as opposed to you know linear television or, and, and traditional television services. So... Is that really the tension? Is the tension that the audience habits are changing, the way we consume content is changing, and in order to stay relevant, you know, monoculture is going away. The days of mm. everybody watching the same TV show on a Thursday night, the, the days of everybody being gathered around to watch the FA Cup on a Saturday, like, that's going away, and these guys are chasing monoculture. So do you think that's behind this as well? Not just a desire to, I mean, yes, to increase their profits, to enrich themselves, but also... They're ready to cut themselves adrift from the traditions of football because they believe it is the way they can create a monoculture event around their new league. 100%, yes. And I think the clubs have been very open about this. Um, not, not necessarily at this particular moment in time, but Real Madrid compared themselves to Disney. 
Um, Manchester United always talk about social media impressions and things like that. I think if you look at the decisions Manchester United have been making, they are um, content decisions rather than sporting decisions. So appointing Jose Mourinho, for example, absolutely, and, and Spurs guilty of this as well. R- rubbish appointment. Uh, like, what? How on earth in a sporting context could either of those clubs have thought that Jose Mourinho, <laughs> a Jose Mourinho tenure would go any differently? Um, right, it's you worked know, for them though, isn't it? it it's, it's worked for them because Jose Mourinho gets you eyeballs. He makes you talked about. It's content. Um, one of the things, one of the things um, I read a couple of weeks ago that really struck me that I can't remember where I read it was about uh, the Galacticos. Um, initially, first time around under Perez at Real Madrid, sporting-wise, complete failure. They they won very very little because they had no team cohesion. They sold Cloud Makélélé to buy David Beckham, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but immensely successful for them in terms of building their brand because everyone understands what Galacticos means. They understand that that's Real Madrid, and they understand that Real Madrid identify themselves as the club that buys the talent at it, at its prime. And so it's it's about building identity. And what's um what's really interesting as well, I, I've seen a really what I consider quite strange seam of Arsenal Twitter today that are very like, uh, this is like a betrayal to the legacy of Arsene Wenger, who never would have let this happen. Um, and, and this isn't me having a dig at Wenger, by the way, but this is just like a ridiculously idealized view um, that, that like Wenger was like the moral... Uh, the moral guardian of Arsenal Football Club, and this and, wouldn't and have did happened. Did collect on his seven watch. million a year, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and under KSC, and was as we discussed earlier, the kind of pioneer of the top four as a trophy and all of that, um, and now works for FIFA. Um, you know, but 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 I think one of the reasons for it is one of the things that's worked really really well for Arsenal is the whole Project Youth thing, and we did we did a podcast on it during. Um, during the time when football was suspended last year about Project Youth. Nobody from Arsenal ever called it Project Youth, right? Nobody called it that. But the fans gave it a name because there was something so tangible about it. And there was there was something like idealistic about it. There was something to buy into about it, about it. This idea that you buy the best young talent from all over Europe and the world and then put it all together. Um, and, you know, Wenger spoke in those terms. And I'm not suggesting he did that for, like, content or corporate reasons. I, I think he believed in the sporting aspect of it, um, given the situation we were in at the time. But I think that's really driven. Like, even though that period coincided with a big trophy drought, I think that that story, like, really helped to build Arsenal's brand. You know, the whole we don't buy superstars, we make them thing. That, I think, at a time when kind of more kind of continental overseas interest was being cultivated. I think like loads of people just loved that idea. And so you had the Invincibles followed by Project Youth. And that really like that that that's branding right there, right? Again, the Invincibles, not a phrase that Arsenal used. It was the fans that coined the phrase. If you look at the 2003-4 um, season review DVD for that year, Arsenal called it the Untouchables. Um, but it was the fans who decided that Invincible sounded better. And again, everybody knows what that means. So in terms of brand building, 
um, so, some of that stuff is is really really interesting and so now people have have really started to associate Arsenal with this idea of like um, you know of, of having this like idealism and and you know even like the self-sustaining model which which is really very very convenient for our billionaire owner but it's it's been tied up yeah. with this idea of like being idealistic you know and and so all of this stuff is is just really really interesting and plays into it and a lot of it is just not really built on sporting on on what you achieve in a sporting sense look at spurs as as any arsenal fan will tell you spurs win fuck all year after year after year after year but what they've managed to do is build a brand and cultivate a brand and a new stadium and they've got harry kane like the england captain the the local boy made good and all of that and they've managed to build their story and so what's quite interesting about a lot of this is that quite a lot of these clubs have built their brands on things that aren't that aren't sporting and and i put this in the chat but i might as well kind of bring it up a a lot of these super clubs have started to deliberately uncouple themselves from their geographical location in their branding so juventus juve bayern psg united they've taken out like arsenal and spurs already kind of have that built in they've taken out the geographical aspect of their name um and and that that's also really interesting to me because they're trying to become kind of you know global entities and and so apologies i've almost entirely forgotten what your question is and just rambled on so i'll stop now how's that different from the podcast's regular flow i feel feel like (laughs) that's an homage to the podcast through the years um there's a there's a lot here also that I think has to be measured in the distance of time because I do think let's say this thing happened tomorrow well not tomorrow at the end of the season I think the short term impact is a lot less than people actually think that we would feel it less than people think um we, I mean we'd maybe feel it more because we'd be in the elite European competition which we currently aren't but um but long term I think that's where the danger lies because I do think the goal would be to reshape all of football in this image and that their their ambition doesn't stop at creating this. Their ambition, long-term, is to make this the only thing, not the, the, not the European adjunct to the domestic league. Now, they can't cancel domestic football, but they can make it so irrelevant and so small that at some point they just move to the weekends and stop participating in it. So that that is my fear, is that in the fullness of time, this this destroys everything that, that matters right now. I will say what's what I struggle with is having the champions of football be UEFA or FIFA or the government. You know, that that makes me deeply uncomfortable. And Clive, you touched on that a bit, so I won't go into it too much further. I think we can start to wrap up and, and get to some of the other issues. But like one thing, Clive, that I, I struggle with, I read things like these greedy billionaires are taking football away from the fans. And that is a feeling that I connect with immediately. I read like, and I'm like, yeah. And then I try to interrogate it and I say, how are they doing that? So let's look beyond the Premier League, for example. Let's say you're a La Liga fan and you're a mid-table La Liga fan. This doesn't change anything. For 20 years, if you're not Bayern, Real, or Atletico Madrid, you're not winning the league. And with very limited exceptions, you're not getting into the Champions League. Um, you know, the Premier League has maybe had the illusion of a little more competitiveness, although by the numbers, not much more itself. In fact, you've had more outside winners, <laughs> ironically. But like, 
in in what ways do you think this does meaningfully start to steal the soul of football from the fans? Um, if you think it does, and in what ways do you think that soul was stolen and some of this is illusory and we're only now just being slapped in the face with a reality that's actually existed for a while? Yeah, football's not fair and sport's not fair. And um, we've seen that, you know. I can remember when um, Man City started to buy players. I said to myself, no one's going to go to Man City. No one's going to They've got no history. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are a few years later. That's been proven wrong. Because money has driven that brand and everything they've done with it has been quite smart. And, and yeah, Chelsea so To your point, same. just real quick, Clive, there may be no more iconic broadcast moment in recent years than the Aguero, right? And like, so now <laughs> one of the biggest think- moments in recent football tradition is from a traditionless club, you know? Yeah, and you know, they've done their work, they've got yeah. their backers and, and we let it happen. And not only did we let it happen, you know, our Sky TV, they want it to happen because it created more depth, it created more competition. You know, they, Chelsea, uh, if you, I, I urge you to look at Chelsea's accounts over the last few years and you'll see in those accounts every odd year, 100 million here, 80 million here, just Abramovich just throwing money in. And we're here on this podcast and we're criticizing Arsenal, we're comparing them to Chelsea. They've had 1.5 billion of extra funding that our club hasn't had. Right? And we, yet we expect to beat them. Football's not fair. It's not fair. Sport's not fair. And and these guys are just. I've always said it. They're not prepared to. They're not prepared to carry the risk they carry today. Um, and yeah, I, I feel. Um, I feel like this is this is this is something like this is going to happen. I can't get away from it. Really, something like is going to happen. I just can't get away from that feeling. Um, and what saddens me more than anything is, you know, I, I love the game, love the sport, and I was really looking forward to those Villarreal games. I was really looking forward to them. You know, you can't take away the feeling we had pre the Slavia game. You know, I've been been to many Champions League games, Bayern Munich games, and the, the excitement before the games was just like all encompassing. Right, it's just amazing feeling around the ground. It's, Something that's I just don't I just don't want that to go away for people. And for me, okay, I'm in a different stage in my life now. I've sort of lived it. I feel for the younger people who are just starting out, who want to see Arsenal win the league, who want to see this stuff, and they've not had the chance to see it in, in the glory days. And that would come round again. I feel for them. They won't have the experiences, and they shouldn't be denied them, right? So, but maybe they're going to have a different experience, and that's something that you have to accept. You know, you can't. Things don't stay the same, I'm afraid. And if you've got stupid organisations like UEFA and FIFA at the top who are literally trying to dilute the game, the World Cup is getting bigger, right? And the Champions League is getting bigger. But you're diluting the funding. And it just goes against the very people that provide you with all of your revenue. You've got to look after them. You've got to look at the game differently. You cannot have... These people paying Messi a million pound a week, and then giving them the same point, part of the pie. Messi drives the Champions League over the last few years. You've got to think like a businessman, and these guys are not business people at UEFA, and they're they're being told how to run their game, and and we are suffering because of the stupidity of UEFA and the corruption at that level. I mean, we're preparing for a World Cup in Qatar. What does that tell you about everything that's wrong with the game? Mm. 
Right? So let's not pretend you know, everything's perfect. No, I don't think anybody was, was under that misapprehension. And I want to be clear. It is, in my view, not incompatible to recognize that it had been going this way already, that greed had already taken over the game, that the game had been taken from the fans in a meaningful way, that it had been become more about the, the people watching on TV than the people going to the stadium. It is compatible to believe that and still want to draw a line in the sand and say, this is too far. That this consortium of self-interested clubs deciding for football who gets to be a have and who gets to be a have-not is too far. Even if you can come back at me and say that was already happening just based on who had the money. And I can't really argue it, but I can still say that there is something inherently unique about football culture, about promotion and relegation and European qualification that is special. And I realize it hasn't always existed. And other things exist that are also special. But th- this is a... This is not an attempt to evolve the game. This is an attempt to convert the game to something else that it has never been, to something else that exists somewhere else that is part of a different type of culture. This is a cultural change. And in a way, you know, the Premier League was a bit of that and and the Champions League was a bit of that, but it was an extension of what already existed, but a a capitalism uh, framework put around a thing that already existed. This is a culture change. And Tim, there's one other point that has to be made. They are using the cover of COVID to help accelerate doing this, announce doing this, and justify doing this. But billionaires don't think in 12-month increments. None of these owners, you know, whether they are literally nation states or multi-billionaires, are at any risk of bankruptcy because of COVID. Stan Kroenke's wealth increased during COVID, okay? So you can point me to the 100 million pound losses. They are a rounding error for him. Now, I'm not saying that you should run a club at 100 million pound loss. What I'm saying is I what I will not accept, whether you like this new proposal or hate this new proposal, you know, fine. I will not accept the idea that it had to happen because of COVID, because that is a short term answer to people who think in much longer timelines. Yeah, absolutely. This this has been talked about for over 20 years, uh, probably longer than that, but it's been seriously talked about for 15, 20 years. I mean, the Champions League becoming the Champions League in the early 90s was, you know, it w- was all about this. Um, so, the, you know, that that is absolutely, it, it might have hastened it slightly, but I, I don't even think, I, I think it's probably just given them the opportunity to do it more than, you know, oh God, we've got to do this now. Otherwise we might, you know, lose another hundred million. It's, it's, it's just hastened it really. And yeah, using um, COVID as a cover for this is, is especially cynical. And as we were saying earlier in the pod, JP Morgan, don't just put down five billion pounds. Uh, you know, they weren't asked for that money like <laughs> on on Friday night, you know, and there's stuff like um, the, the the rebel clubs, uh, should we call them, you know, saying that they are they think they're on safe legal ground not to be thrown out of existing competitions and things like that. That kind of legal advice is not something you ask for on a Friday night either. <laughs> that if you've had the lawyers involved, which let's let's have this right, the lawyers will have been involved for many, many years like this. This is just. This is stuff that takes lots and lots of time. And besides which, all of this was leaked anyway before the pandemic. Um, there were reports in the New York Times and and others. And I forget, I think it might have been, was it Sam Wallace mm. um, who might have broken some of this in the UK at the back end of 2019 that all of these, uh, all of these things were going on and Project Picture and all of that. Like, yeah, I mean, using 
covid um and then just hearing stuff like florentino perez talking about you know this will be great for the wider football pyramid like no it won't (laughs) like it absolutely none of these steps have ever been greater for the wider football pyramid (laughs) no no and even stuff like um you know just tossing in like a you know and, and there'll be a women's competition I promise you that not one conversation has taken place about um, a parallel and adjacent women's competition because it doesn't make any sense because the clubs are not the same. Um, And I I can say with a lot of, um, um, I I can say quite plainly that this is a surprise to, to a lot of people and they haven't talked about women's competition at all. It's just one of the lawyers said, um, you better put that in so you don't look like sexist dinosaurs. And by the way, you made an important point. You're saying the clubs aren't the same. Well, they will be now, which is just an example of how arrogant these people are because they're like, well, the big women's clubs aren't the same as the big men's clubs in every case. Hey, you know what? We'll just make them the same because we've got the money to do it. So screw whatever tradition there is in women's football. The big clubs in women's football are now these clubs <laughs> yeah yeah and you know? and but it but the thing is it's so ridiculous in like women's football because the two biggest european clubs are leon and wolfsburg and they won't be in it not anymore they've yep. won mm-hmm. they, they've won all of the last nine champions leagues and they're not going to be in it liverpool are 12 points off the top in the second flight of english football so um tottenham Tottenham are like relegation fodder in the top flight. Manchester United have only existed for three years. Like none of these clubs. Have, do you know in the women's um, competition, only one of these 12 clubs has ever won the Women's Champions League. You know what's great about and, this though, Tim? And it's Arsenal. Yeah, but you know what's great about this? This is the distillation of their their worldview, which is none of that yeah. tradition or history matters if we have the money. The irony is in the men's game, you can stare at it from a, an oblique angle and see how it makes sense. But in the women's game, the absurdity of it is laid bare because it's just, we have the money, we can make it matter. Those other clubs no longer are the elite. These clubs are the elite. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're trying to basically just say, oh, we'll just like remodel women's football as we know it. Um, and, and that's, you know, when you look at what's happened to Liverpool women under John, that we, we talk a lot on this podcast about FSG and how good they are. Um, not for the women's team <laughs> who've been relegated, who are not included in Liverpool's new training ground. Like Liverpool women are Tranmere Rovers women. Um, that's where all the administration goes. They just wear the Liverpool shirt. Liverpool don't care about them. Um, so forgive me if I don't think John W. Henry um, or Florentino Perez, Real Madrid women is one year old. This is their first season. So forgive me if like don't. these guys don't, don't really look like great guardians of the future of women's football. But you're right. That's just part of the arrogance of it. And and it's not just the arrogance of it. Like I said, they haven't talked about it. It hasn't figured in the discussion. It's just someone said, oh, shit, we better we better drop that in. Yeah, there's just a nakedness about the greed and arrogance in this. And the only thing that keeps me from going full tilt mental about it is just that I think there's been a greed and arrogance about all this for so long that it is just when they've pushed it to the absolute extreme that they're finally seeing the pushback. And that I think leads us to the last thing we have to discuss Clive, which is this feels like an urgent moment for football that if this happens, football, as we have known, it will change. It will go away and it will be replaced by something else. And maybe the next generation, the young people who are watching Twitch and TikTok, will love this thing more that the global audience will grow, that this will become the thing that people cherish as football. But it feels almost like, it will forever split that universe of people in half. 
and the universe of people that embraced this game, this beautiful game and its traditions, will finally and fully be disenfranchised from it and and potentially leave it. And and a new thing will spring up in its wake. This does not feel like an evolution. This feels like a, a total reworking. So I guess I would ask you two really simple questions. I mean, simple insofar as understanding what they mean, not, not necessarily in answering them, which is one, will this happen? And two, will this destroy football as we have known it and embraced it? Um, will it destroy football? Probably change football. I don't think it'll destroy football. There's too much love for the game, I'm afraid. And we're talk about we are the definition of the captive audience. Um, so I don't think it'll destroy football. I think it'll change football. If you're looking for indications, Manchester United share price went up 10% today, and I think Juventus went up 16%. So that tells you a lot, doesn't it? You know, um, so it won't destroy football. Football is. Do you physically... get a trophy for um, that? <laughs> <laughs> well, they might as well. That's yeah, what it's about. Yeah. Those jokes used to be way hold a lot more weight a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Right now, they're not jokes anymore. They're reality. Um, and that is the reality of things, really. And I think the uncomfortable truth is what, right in front of us. And that's, what's, that's what today's been about, I think, for many people. This is the truth. We've been conning ourselves about what we've been seeing, what we've been involved with. But what's not a con is how you feel about your team and how you feel about the sporting aspect. And I think that could be the differentiator. If you football has to decide whether it's going to take away the sporting structures by which it's always had. There may be different competitions, but the structures, how you feel, and the games that matter, they really do matter to a lot of people across many different leagues. In, in, in particularly in England, I mean, for anybody, I know this is not just a local podcast, but if you're on the motorways on a Saturday, you see fans from everywhere going everywhere to watch a game of football. And it's part of the traditions, per se. But those traditions are up for grabs right now. You know, they really are. And So, yeah. Do I think it's going to happen? Um, I think something's going to happen, Elliot. Something is going to happen. And it's going to be seismic. And it's going to be huge. And there is no way these people are going to allow themselves to lose hundreds of millions of pounds and not react. And that was always the case. So all those people blustering, he's a get with the program. Billionaires don't like losing money. And they control everything. And with the game is nowhere near maximized financially. And they know it. And that's what they bought in. That's what they gave money away initially. And they was always going to get it back. So here we are. Yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> the there is this gamble that they are taking that what people actually want is something that's more like what America has in its sports world. One league closed off all the quote-unquote best teams competing for one big trophy every year, and every year a different team could win it. Because let, let's be honest, once you have you know spending caps and a closed league, Everyone gets their turn to win it as long as they're run reasonably well. I realize that's not a, an assumption we can make with Arsenal, but that's how it works. And then you bring in these five other, you know, punching bags to beat up on to make it look democratic for a few years before you fully close it off. There's this perception that that's, that's what people will want and that, that that will bring in the TV revenue. I think that's a gamble they could get wrong. 
You know, when I first got the chance to start traveling outside the borders of the country in which I lived and I ate the food and I, you know, I tasted the drinks and I experienced the culture, it brought something to life in me. Ooh, this is different. This is amazing. I like this. I want to experience this. And football was like that for me. And I'm not trying to, you know, make myself sound like the quintessential tourist, but the fact is there was something about football that felt different to the sanitized sporting experience I have here. And I loved it. And I fell for it, you know, head over heels, obviously, for 20 years, which is where I've been now. The idea that I want it to be the sort of sanitized, easy to digest, easy to understand, everybody gets a turn league that's in America, maybe that is what people want, but it's not what I want. Now, what I want doesn't matter because the one thing that does make this democratic is people will vote with their money and the broadcasters will vote based on their money, based on viewing figures. But it is a big gamble for the soul of football that what people actually want is a sanitized, more digestible version of something that has existed for you know hundreds of years that has a distinct culture that is now being ripped out. And I, I think that is a big risk. Again, I do want to emphasize, I think the wrong argument against this is that they picked the wrong teams. That's the one. Like, if your argument is, why do Arsenal get to be in this? They're a terrible club. Look, this wasn't picked, as Paul said it best, they picked brands. They picked teams that will bring in the most viewers. So even if you want to make fun of Arsenal, and God knows we deserve it, more people are watching Arsenal on TV than watching Leicester. Leicester are a better run club right now. They're not as big as Arsenal. So that's what it boils down to. Tim, I'll get your final word. Do you think it'll happen? And candidly, you know, without having to defend it logically, how mm. big a hammer blow is it to you for your love for the club, for your love for the sport? How disappointed are you in your club? Or did you long since give give up, you know, any, any kind of uh, false sense of security about your club believing in any values because of who owns it? So do I think it will happen? I mean, yeah, this this is more than a bluff. And even if it doesn't happen this time, it's there, there's no going back on this really now. So, yes, I, I do think it will happen. Um, as to kind of, I don't know how, how disappointed I am, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I feel like it, it's a further fracture in my relationship with um, all of this, he says, gest- gesturing wildly. Um, but it, it's not one I didn't expect. It, it still feels a bit brutal, but I was I was prepared for this, I think. Um, I, I am disappointed in Arsenal. Arsenal are not a bystander. Like I've seen a lot of, oh, well, we have to be in it. And um, I get that. But Arsenal are not an innocent bystander. Uh, grabbing a rubber dinghy because they're about to drown. They are one of the architects of this. KSC have been working on this for a long time. This has been, this is this has been their end game for a long time. They have been, you know, they are one of the architects. It's that simple. Um, so, but I, I knew that anyway um, before this. So, yes, I am disappointed as to my level of engagement with it. I imagine, to be honest, my level of engagement has been going this way for a while, which might have, which is probably just me um, protecting myself. But I can't see myself just completely walking away. Not least because the equation is further complicated for me because a good portion of my income is tied up with uh, producing Arsenal content, and that's difficult to walk away from for um, you know because I have a mortgage. Um, but I, th- I think the pandemic and not being able to go to games has got me used to the idea of watching Arsenal on TV, for example. So um, having had recently had a child as well, I don't think, um, I would have been going to games to the level that I have been most of my life anyway. So there are a lot of things that are actually incidental or coincidental that have just happened at this same time. Baku was the fra- the real fracture for me, but obviously I stayed very engaged. 
like there's not even a question that I'm going to be able to go to most of these um, Super League games even if I wanted to so I imagine that what I will do Elliot is I'll do what I've been doing for the last year which is watch them on TV um, they won't mean as much um, and then I'll probably do a podcast with you guys about them afterwards and probably in that manner just create um, you know create a new experience somehow and 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 probably adapt, um, which again, like I say, because of the pandemic, I've probably been doing for the last year anyway. So in, in an absolutely 100% selfish Tim Stillman world, th- this is kind of probably coming at, at the best time. It, best time is not the phrase to use here, but like this is the time I'd have chosen, right? Um, off the back of a pandemic, off the back of having a child, um, off the back of probably having burnt out my anger fuse on Baku um so I, I saw all this coming and you know if if it means that my relationship because the the pandemic has provided a very natural natural fracture in time I now accept that when you know we all go back and things become a bit more normal that my relationship won't be the same mm. um but this this fracture in time has probably probably adjusted me to a new way of experiencing of experiencing football and arsenal yeah i mean it's so hard for me because i think predictions are a dangerous thing when you're predicting things you're emotional about and i feel very sad about this and the sort of front of my brain and the back of my brain you know the lizard part and the the part that tries to be considered about things are struggling to connect to each other about what the ramifications of this are but who knows maybe when it's Arsenal at the Bernabeu and, you know, Barcelona at, at the Emirates. And we're in the semifinal of the Super League, you know, for the, for the trophy. Like, m- maybe it will mean the world to me. I can't project what that will feel like. Um, you know, I, I think they are taking a dangerous gamble here if it happens. We're not going to uh, prognosticate right now about, like, what's going to happen with this season's Europa League and, you know, will the players get banned and stuff like that? Because that, that news will all just come out in time and we can sort of figure it out uh, at that time. So I think we can leave it there for now. I mean, this is obviously the conversation of the moment and the one that will, that will really carry the day and, and determine, you know, where football is going. And and I want to say that if you are totally outraged about it to the point that you cannot fathom a future like this, I absolutely endorse that reaction. If you are someone who has, you know, maybe a slightly more sanguine view on it and can see a world where it's not the end of football as we know it. I also sanction that viewpoint. It is a massive change. I wish I could hop in a time machine, you guys, and be on a Twitter that existed when the Champions League was announced or when the Premier League was announced. Imagine what they would have said when you found out, wait a minute, teams that finish fourth in a league can compete for the European Cup now? And they're calling it the Champions League? These guys aren't even champions. The memes would have been through the roof. Right, I mean, when the Premier when the Premier League was announced, they they said things like, "We're going to stop you playing international football." Yeah. So, so there you go. The more things change, plus ça change. Um, clarity so, this week, people. Clarity this week. Sit on your hands. This will. This is not done yet. By Friday's your way for meeting. Let's see what happens then. It's going to be a lot of bluster this week. People reacting. But hold on to your horses. And then clarity will come out in the next few days. I mean, Henrik Mkhitaryan couldn't go play for his team in a European final because his ethnicity, his ethnic group basically was not permitted in the country. I mean, we can't pretend football's been fine. It hasn't been fine. But I I fully accept that 
you do get to draw a line in the sand somewhere and say enough is enough. And I would like to think that this is that line in the sand, but we will find out. Um, all right, that's a long one. There'll be more. We have made the Patreon Instant Reaction Pod free for everyone. You can just go to Patreon and click on it and listen to it um, if you want match analysis from the Fulham game. And we will try to produce a, a week's worth of content about whatever feels urgent. So if there's no real developing news about this, we may get back into the football more specifically right away. Uh, but if urgent news breaks, we may do a little bit more on this as it's warranted. So we will we'll leave that up in the air and see. Um, but I hope everyone's hanging in there because emotionally this is a this is a heavy hit. And I, and I definitely think there's going to be a lot of arguing, unfortunately, and I hope we can treat each other with respect and grace and recognize that everyone's going to react to it a little differently. I think cultural influences are going to weigh heavily here as well. So uh, I hope you're doing all right with it. Tim's on Twitter. It's Roberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Yeah, my name's Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Um, we love you. And we will talk to you after Billionaires 10 Football New. The headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com